0: Welcome to The Cheap Seats. This is the show where we get you front row seats for the best LGBTIQ spoken word events from Melbourne and from around the world. I'm Dean, and it's great to have your company tonight. We are in The Cheap Seats for a human rights panel discussion that explores the ideological struggle between autocracy and democracy. The discussion is brought to us by Human Rights First. They are a non-profit, non-partisan international human rights organization based in New York and in Washington, D.C. Our panel this evening explores the experience in Asia and the Middle East and how political leadership in those regions oppose the spread of democracy and human rights. Our focus in particular is on the experience in Saudi Arabia, Iran, Hungary, and China. So let's grab our snacks from the candy bar, turn our mobile phones to silent,
2: and join the conversation from the cheap seats on Joy ninety four point nine. To start the conversation, I am going to turn to Carol because I think when we think about um, authoritarianism and we think about uh, um, extremism, we tend to think about our "quote unquote" or erstwhile enemies, right? So it's it's countries like maybe China or Iran. Uh, for instance. But Saudi Arabia is an ally of the United States in some ways, uh, even though the way it organizes itself is not uh, in a way that we would countenance as uh, freedom lovers and uh, erstwhile protectors of human rights. So, Carol, why don't we talk a little bit about that dilemma?
3: Good afternoon. Can everybody hear me okay? Okay. Okay. Um, The questions we were uh, supposed to answer in this panel this afternoon, or the main question was whether the authoritarian nature of our respective countries, in my case Saudi, present a challenge to U.S. foreign policy. But I think another question that has to be addressed in tandem with this is whether the authoritarian nature of Saudi Arabia challenges U.S. interests. And I think the answer to these two questions are as follows. Saudi presents a challenge to U.S. foreign policy if that policy really is to advance respect for human rights, tolerance of other opinions, tolerance for other religions, sexual orientation, and political views. As you know, U.S. foreign policy, however, is cleaved in two. We have a rhetorical foreign policy, and then we have the real policy. As for U.S. interests, the authoritarian nature of Saudi, I don't think, presents a challenge to Saudi right now because it's one of the few stable and U.S.-friendly regimes in the Middle East at this moment, which is a boon for U.S. interests because the United States wants to see stability above all else in this region. Please note I said Saudi stable at this moment. I'm not sure about the midterm future, say 10 years from now. Now, I'd like to describe a little bit about what Saudi Arabia has been doing in the region. Uh, It's clear that Saudi Arabia didn't want the Arab Spring to result in any new regimes that presented a more attractive governing model for an Islamic state. And this is why Saudi Arabia has always been wary of Turkey and of the Muslim Brotherhood. So we saw Saudi Arabia work to forestall the Arab Spring, principally in Egypt uh, where it was very happy that the Muslim Brotherhood president had been removed and it's now supporting financially and politically uh, General Sisi, President Sisi. Uh, the other place where Saudi Arabia was very active was Bahrain, where it sent troops in, a very unusual move for Saudi Arabia, to boost the, um, the backing of the royal family in Bahrain. And this was because Saudi Arabia saw a challenge from the... You know, Saudi Arabia is a Sunni Muslim state, and it saw a challenge from the Shiite opposition, Um, and it was also fearing that Iran would start meddling in Bahrain. Now, curiously, Saudi Arabia got on the side of upheaval and revolution when it came to Syria... It became the first state to withdraw its ambassador from Damascus back in 2011. This was a special case for Saudi Arabia because it, it saw Syria as a way to give Iran its main regional rivalry, rival uh, a black eye. Um, on top of the regional upheaval, Saudi Arabia also saw its relationship with Washington, which had an, clearly seen as its closest ally and was already badly strained by the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And after the Arab Spring, this bilateral relationship got even more strained for two major reasons. Um, The Saudis saw the United States abandon Mubarak in Egypt And they thought, wow, if if Washington can do that to their ally in Cairo, what will they do to us if we face a similar situation internally? And secondly, Saudi Arabia was very displeased to find out that the United States was secretly negotiating for over a year with Iran, uh, and those talks eventually led to the public talks on Iran's nuclear program. Now, internally... I think it's important to realize that the Saudis, they don't love the royal family, except maybe for King Abdullah. And there's a great amount of affection for this king, especially from women, because he's tried to advance women in education and and in the workforce. They don't love their royal family in general, but very few want to get rid of them. Uh, The only groups that would like a change in the political system Uh, are the violent jihadis who are a minority and they want to topple the state, and then the relatively small, pro-democratic, progressive Saudis who would like to see a gradual movement towards a constitutional monarchy. But most Saudis see that the royal family has to stay in place because they see it as the only way to guarantee that tribal, personal, and regional rivalries don't tear the country apart. So it's a very utilitarian uh, relationship that they have with their royal family. Um, When King Abdullah ascended the throne uh, in 2000, now almost a decade ago, he began opening up. He gave the press more freedom to talk uh, about problems in the state Um, and to criticize officials. But since the Arab Spring, there's been a retrenchment. And any of you who have been reading uh, human rights reports will know that political reform activists, human rights activists, have increasingly been arrested and put in jail for long terms. And the Saudis' tolerance for what people were saying on Twitter uh, has kind of evaporated, and people are now being prosecuted and jailed for what they say on Twitter. Um, given these situations, what should U.S do about Saudi Arabia's situation when it comes to human and political rights? I can go on, or I can leave that for the discussion. I have a couple of ideas
2: why don 't we leave it for the discussion so that we okay. can kind of play off uh, off one another a little bit more i 'm um, struck by the fact that when you think about the Arab Spring um, and you look around the region from Morocco all the way across to the gulf you 're struck by the fact that it was only the republics that had the deep, deep challenges uh, that that ultimately led to the collapse of uh, Gaddafi in Libya, uh, Ben Ali in Tunisia, Mubarak in Egypt, uh, threatened uh, Bashar al-Assad, and has torn the country apart. It's, it's the republics. And somehow the monarchies, it's, it's helpful to be commander of the faithful at some, some level. There's a, there's a source of legitimacy that's slightly different. Uh, But this is a challenge, of course, uh, to this notion of universal uh, human rights norms and the the idea of advancing democracy in a kingdom where the source of legitimacy is religion, something that we can come back to. To kind of make the transition then to talk a little bit about Iran, where the supreme leader and this rival in terms of who is it that leads the quote-unquote Muslim world uh, has been a defining Characteristic of the struggle uh, that's that's been taking place in the year, in the region for 1,500 years and is clearly at play right now. So, Mohammed, I'll just turn it over to you for some thoughts.
4: Thank you, Scott, for your introduction. Thank you for inviting me. It's indeed a great honor to be speaking here today. Um, what I want to do is I want to go uh, and talk about the narrative that you you um, um, you mentioned earlier today. A narrative that comes out of the uh, um, the Iranian. Uh, conservative uh, camp. Um, A couple of months ago, Iran's Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, made a a very important, very interesting speech. uh, In a meeting with a group of uh, some senior clerics Um, in the country, he said that there is a new international order that is emerging. And he argued that the new uh, order... in this new international order, the United States is not gonna enjoy the same position that it did since World War II. Um, um, And the implication was that if the US used its primary position after 1945 uh, to universalize its own values uh, and ideals, uh, in this current position, um, it may not be able to do so as it did in the past. So he argued that there is a new opportunity uh, for other states um, to be more assertive. Um, And by being more assertive, he meant first militarily and strategically. um, um, And he has referred a number of times to the fact that the U.S. has been struggling in Iraq, in Afghanistan, um, um, and especially after the Arab Spring. Um, And then uh, also politically, Um, So Iran has been trying to export its electoral autocracy uh, in the region, uh, encouraging its allies in Iraq, in Syria, in in Lebanon, uh, and other countries in the region to use democratic institutions, to use elections uh, um, to come to power or to sustain their position. And last but not least, uh, in addition to this military and and, and political uh, uh, opportunities, there's also an opportunity to... uh, uh, to expand their own ideology, and by ideology um, you see a number of different components. One of them is religion, indeed, uh, which has its it has different dimensions. One is Shi- Shiism, but Shiism has its own limit because Shiites only are only ten percent of the population. Automatically, Iran is on the losing end of this. So, um, and as he made in another, uh, he he made a point in another speech. Uh, they should use Islam as much as they can, but they should also use other other issues. The other issue that is very effective and very important, and they are uh, they have been using this since, uh, especially since the 79 revolution, is anti-Americanism. Um, and it is something that uh, they think it can appeal to the non-Muslim population, you know, in other areas. Um, and. And this anti-American narrative is not necessarily new. It goes back to the, uh, to the at least early 90s uh, after the Iran-Iraq war when Ayatollah Khamenei uh, uh, articulated his, the new challenges that the, that the Islamic Republic was facing. And the new challenge was not necessarily militarily, but also um, a cultural in, in the form of a cultural invasion of the West. Um, and I'll be happy to talk about the mechanism of this in the Q&A later. Mm-hmm. But um, in this cultural invasion, and by the way, he made a speech in the early 90s, before the Internet, mm-hmm. uh, and, and now he feels kind of vindicated, that, see, I told you so, even, even back then. Mm-hmm. But that was when the satellite uh, TV channels were becoming more and more popular, that they're using this um, because, the US, uh, because Iran has all these proxies in the region. It's dif- more difficult for them to challenge Iran militarily. What they're going to do is, in the form of cultural invasion, they're going to empty us from inside. Um, and in this regard, TV channels and now the Internet and overall the media play a huge role. And he has said several times that the media is more dangerous than the atomic bomb. And it makes perfect sense from that perspective. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, and, 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 and then, by the way, in, in this, in this uh, fear of the West or anti-American narrative, he, is, he doesn't feel alone anymore. And he thinks that Russia is coming on board right now. Um, which is, which is very, uh, very important. And he has said several times that this is anti-Americanism or this battle of ideology is not just a, an, a, um, an abstract theoretical issue. No, it's a very pragmatic issue. It's a matter of survival. And anyone, anyone who has put an end to this kind of uh, to, to this ideology has been overthrown from the Soviet Union all the way to Muammar Gaddafi in, 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 in Libya. So it is a matter of survival. Um, and, um, and, and he thinks that the Russians, as I said, are not on, on board with him. Um, um, they can be, with, with, with hopefully a return of a form of like a Cold War rivalry, maybe they can be an ally uh, of, of, of Iran. But let me end by just saying, uh, making one final point, um, and that is, um, the real challenge to this narrative is not actually coming from outside of Iran, to this, to this war of ideology. It's coming from within Iran he's facing a population that does not believe in this in this rhetoric anymore as it did let's say back in 79 Mm -hmm. and even his own president is to some extent to some limited extent is challenging him Mm -hmm. Um, and and this is this is the interesting battle that you see is is inside (laughs) is within the establishment is within between the state and the society as much as it is in fact it's more than uh, what it is beyond 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 the Iranian government
2: Thanks, It's interesting, that tension there, right? Because when the supreme leader talks about a cultural invasion and then sees the people disagreeing with him, it's easy to define what's taking place as a result of the cultural invasion, which is actually coming from these, again, universal set of desires for a different sort of system. But that cultural invasion theme, by the way, seems to be common uh, across many of the countries and places that were we're talking about.
4: Joy
1: 94.9 is a GLBTIQ community radio station in Melbourne, Australia.
2: Support Joy 94.9 by becoming a member at joy.org.au. We don't have anybody on the panel to talk about Russia uh, per se, but obviously that's a huge part of Putin's own rhetoric and narrative about the West. We have to... We, we have to protect our, our nation state, our sovereignty, our culture, what it means to be orthodox, uh, et cetera, and that this is a very powerful motivator uh, for those who are supporting Putin right now. But there is, according to Senator John McCain, a neo-fascist dictator uh, in the, uh, a country that used to be firmly embedded in the West, that's part of the European Union, that is also uh, part of NATO, and that is Hungary, and so, Tomash, can you tell us what is going on?
5: Yeah, I think the the neo-fascist dictator is an overstatement. So we are not that far yet, <laughs> but uh, the trend is, uh, is is bad. The trend is not good. Uh, it's funny that the, 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 it's the same narrative than uh, we heard before. Uh, uh, in in Hungary, the government use uh, is or the pro-government people are having marches, and, uh, and the main message of these marches is that we will not be a colony. They, they put it on big uh, posters, that we will not be a colony. Uh, that means that uh, they feel, or, or our government and its supporters feel, that uh, we are somehow being colonized by the West, and and it has to be ended and we need to uh, we need an eastern opening we need to turn away from from western values uh, of course it's not uh, it's not it didn't came out of the blue it uh, 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 from 1990 to 2010 Hungary t- started to move to the western direction and, and even uh, only ten years ago it was a huge success that uh, Hungary got uh, enrolled in the e- European Union. But what followed was, uh, was a rise in, in corruption, especially in political corruption. We got a, a lot of money from, from the EU and uh, politicians start to, to spend it in a crazy way. Uh, uh, there, was a, there is a huge problem with the, the foreign currency mortgage loans we, In the last decade, a significant, significant part of the Hungarian people uh, took these loans And now they are unable to pay them And, uh, and it caused a lot of uh, trouble And uh, then uh, came... Orban Viktor, Viktor Orban, uh, the new prime minister, who said that we need to to change things here. It's it's we are not heading in a, a good direction. And and what he he announced it's it's uh, it's uh, uh, simply it's the authoritarian uh, direction. So he he said that we need a, a central power. We need a uh, a national cooper- cooperation he, he call, they call this system the, system the political system of national cooperation and that means that we have the governing party Fidesz in the center and we have some opposition parties on, on the left and on the right as well but they are uh, mar- marginalized and uh, they have no real weight so, so Orbán started to centralize power started to to margina- marginalize and even criminalize uh, uh, political opposition and then uh, started to marginalize and smear critical voices uh, uh, which are not part of the political opposition so the uh, for instance to, to give you a picture just a week ago uh, in the leading pro government daily newspaper human rights first was pictured as a conspiracy as a part of a conspiracy against Hungary along with the government of the United States uh, the CIA and George Soros so these are the forces who want to who are who wants to attack Hungary, and, and this is the message we, the, the government propaganda keeps, keeps telling the people that, that we are under attack from, from, from these forces. So, and Fidesz used the, the two thirds majority it gained in 2010 in the parliament to change the constitution multiple times. So, not uh, one change, but uh, uh, multiple changes. They substantially modified the legal system and the cardinal laws without any consultation with uh, opposition parties or anyone else. So they just modified the the legal system. Uh, uh, The governing party was rewriting and tweaking election laws before the 2014 elections to favor itself. They did some uh, gerrymandering. They give uh, voting rights to uh, Hungarians living abroad. Uh, And they even created uh, uh, phantom parties with uh, state support before the election to, to divide uh, opposition support, so opposition was, was divided into several uh, small parties, so the, the, this year's election were free but not fair. Uh, and then, after, the, after they won the election again, they, they needed uh, to have a new enemy, because this type of system always needs enemies to fight it's a very milit- uh, Orban and fidesz uses a very militant rhetoric they always need uh, some kind of enemies to to fight to show that they are strong and uh, new enemies are uh, the ngos and uh, 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 they crack down on the, the norway ngo fund which is funding a lot of uh, critical ngos in hungary at the same time, they don't like the media they don't like independent media. they like only the media they own or they can control. so what they did they they from, from even from two thousand and two they started to build up a media empire on their own with companies, friendly companies, and they built a lot of uh, uh, media and then when they won the elections, they occupied. Uh, public service media, which is, uh, which is big in Hungary, and it costs a lot of money to the taxpayers, and they turned it into a, a propaganda machine to, to the government. They, they in, and uh, At the same time, they introduced the extra taxes on advertising re- revenues recently to suppress uh, independent media, uh, which, is, which they don't own. Yeah, they have a new media law which has a chilling effect on on, on on remaining free media because they have a media authority which has only Fidesz appointees on board so uh, there is a f- uh, five member board all, all Fidesz appointees who can who can uh, uh, fine any any media companies so uh, they Fidesz is eroding checks and balances. They limited the powers of the Constitutional Court, and they appointed party loyalists to every key position in the state administration. Uh, Transparency International uh, describes this situation as a state capture, uh, uh, what means that important state institutions and state-owned companies are using taxpayers' money to benefit uh, the economic background of the governing party. So the public procurement is tweaked to, to benefit uh, companies friendly to the, to the government. Uh, and at the same time that they are uh, uh, de- demonizing critical voices who, who point out these uh, uh, problems and they say that uh, the uh, NGOs who receive foreign funding are, are uh, foreign agents and they are traitors and this is the very same uh, Russian recipe uh, which uh, we heard is, is working in other countries as well. And, and at the end this summer, as Scott already mentioned, uh, uh, our prime minister was openly praising illiberal democracies like Russia or China. Uh, he is befriending with the other dictators like the, the head of uh, Azerbaijan who just threw an, an, uh, my colleague, a uh, local investigative journalist, into jail to investigating the, the corrupt dealings of the of the dictator's family so these are the new friends of, of the, the uh, Fidesz and the Hungarian government and this comes along, along with an increasingly hostile statements about the EU and, and, and uh, the United States
0: The Cheap Seats for LGBTIQ spoken word events from Melbourne and the world every Thursday night at 10 p.m. on Joy 94.9 Cheap seats
2: What I what I am particularly struck by in your presentation of the Hungarian case study is how all of the tactics in the authoritarian toolbox are in on full display Uh, They learn from each other. They adopt uh, laws almost uh, wholesale and apply them. Uh, They innovate and share uh, practices in in a number of fora around the the world as they try to uh, advocate for a new set of norms that, that are aligned with their political interests at home. Um, I think one of the challenges continues to be what the source of legitimacy is for these these countries, and, and typically it requires an enemy. Um, but none of us would really, I don't think, be talking about the, the rise of authoritarianism uh, without a, quote-unquote, su- the, quote-unquote, successful model, and that's how people talk about it, which is the, quote-unquote, China model. Um, no one looking at China can uh, argue with the fact that it has been enormously successful in bringing hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in a very, very uh, short period of time. Uh, they have a uh, belief in technocracy. They have a belief in uh, uh, central planning that has uh, served them well, and they don't want to have any type of political uh, difficulties or challenges uh, to that model, and they are actively evangelizing uh, that model around the world and it 's something that we can talk a bit more about. but to introduce the subject, I just wanted to ask Zach to talk a little bit about what he 's seeing in terms of the influence of the Chinese model and China, just Chinese power in Southeast Asia, and what does it mean for uh, the democracies that are including the United States, which is fairly far away in some respects. Thanks.
1: Uh, China's the $9.5 trillion gorilla in the room. Uh, It is. And as the uh, most important trading partner for every Southeast Asian country, the purchaser of raw materials, ores, linking up Southeast Asian states into their own supply chain, and as a foreign investor. Right now, China has incredible sway over the 10 countries within ASEAN, a half a billion people. Uh, There's so many ways that we could talk about China's influence. I I call it a shadow, but not just a shadow, a long, dark shadow. Human rights has really taken uh, a hit across Southeast Asia in the past five years. Um, I could focus on the coup in Thailand, uh, which is a no-brainer. Uh, to discuss. Uh, clearly, it should be lost on no one that the uh, dictator, General Prayut, uh, has made two trips to China. His uh, other members of the junta have made more. Um, and every time that uh, the Americans go out and criticize what's happening there, the reversals, uh, they know who to reach out to and say, We have an alternative. Um, and sadly, uh, Thailand is. Uh, in for a very hard landing. There is going to be no soft landing coming out of this coup. I could also talk about China's counterinsurgency in Xinjiang against the Uyghurs, uh, which is just, uh, I could not think of a counterinsurgency model that has been uh, more counterproductive Um, There's a direct and positive correlation between China's strike-hard campaign and terrorist attacks. Um, But that has certainly given cover to uh, governments in Myanmar and Burma, uh, their own treatment of the uh, Rohingya and the Rakhine uh, Muslims. Um, It certainly see it in southern Thailand, where the Thais are battling an ethnic Malay insurgency. We could also look at it in terms of the situation with refugees. Uh, China has uh, gone and demanded the return of uh, dissidents and uh, Uyghurs across Southeast Asia, including in Vietnam and Cambodia. If you're... ever wondering or asking the question how much is a human life worth, you can actually come up with an actual figure because China has recently put $700 million on the table, uh, no strings attached, no questions asked with Cambodia, and I can guarantee you that they will be coughing up the next Uyghurs that pass through the country. And this has an implication because uh, just last week you had uh, 13 ethnic Montagnards from Vietnam cross into Cambodia. And before the uh, office, uh, uh, UN High Commission for Human Rights has been able to go in and interview these people, see if they uh, are eligible for uh, bona fide refugee status, Uh, the Vietnamese are demanding the same thing, that the Cambodians cough these people up. Um, But the most important way that China has really cast this long, dark shadow Uh, is in uh, freedom of speech, uh, media freedoms, and uh, internet freedoms. These have taken the biggest hits in Southeast Asia. And I would say that there's full spectrum uh, media and internet crackdowns. Uh, we see everything from state-owned uh, control of the media in single-party states such as Laos and Vietnam. Uh, we see a violence against journalists, even in countries like the Philippines, which has uh, very uh, robust and, and uh, 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 media freedoms. Uh, We just celebrated, unfortunately celebrated, the fifth anniversary of the Maguindanao Massacre in which 58 people were gunned down, 37 journalists gunned down in cold blood, and not one person has been brought to justice since then. Uh, We see it uh, in terms of uh, using libel laws in Malaysia and Singapore to silence dissidents. We have control, maybe not direct censorship in Vietnam the way we used to, but editorial meetings between the party propaganda office and editors which really creates this sense of self-censorship um, that that is in many ways far more pervasive there's been attacks on uh, bloggers in Vietnam uh, and journalists because the authorities have actually learned that intimidation causes much Less international furor than putting dissidents on uh, trial, even very quick one day trials, if that. Um, and so we're we're seeing this across Southeast Asia, the internet uh, has become far more Controlled. Uh, Just two days ago, there was an announcement in Cambodia that uh, the government has gone into the three internet service providers and demanded uh, uh, files and all the router records. Uh, This happens in other countries. Vietnam controls the internet. Thailand, uh, since the coup, has gone from partly free to not free because of their Computer Crimes Act and uh, abuse of laissez-majeste laws to silence all political dissent. Uh, so this is really troubling. Um, one thing that uh, we see, uh, Southeast Asia is, is, known not, uh, is, is well known for corruption as well. And here, if you certainly were to plot uh, uh, the scores, uh, and I have done this, uh, from Transparency International uh, and match it up with media freedoms or human rights freedoms, there's a very strong, direct, and positive correlation between uh, high levels of corruption and the lack of uh, uh, free speech. Uh, the media simply does not get to be play their role as an ombudsman. Um, Singapore is an anomaly in this in that they actually have low levels of corruption uh, and high levels of media repression. Uh, but then again, it's four times the size of Washington, D.C. at low tide. It, it is an anomaly. Um, but everywhere else, we're seeing that the the lack of free expression, the lack of a free media, controls over the Internet, uh, arrests of bloggers, uh, has a very, very... Uh, negative uh, impact on socioeconomic
2: development thank you that 's a uh, pretty picture Zach um, one of the things that I've, I've found to be consistent in in the discussion so far has been the this predominant domination of the media by the respective players who can use the the uh, the state-owned media to drive specific messages about what the democracies are really like um, and Zach I was just thinking about you know this report came out yesterday and I don't know if you've had time to take a look at the Chinese news or propaganda um, but how are they reacting to the report and maybe like, how's the Iranian media, media treating the, the report I'm curious as to how um, autocrats are taking a look at these uh, reports and using them
0: uh, it's
2: exactly
1: what you would expect. They're gloating. Uh, the, the, the editorial out of Xinhua yesterday was that the United States is in no position to tell any country uh, 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 how to treat their own citizens. Um, the U.S. is in no position to lecture uh, any country about their own human rights situation until they get their own house in order. Uh, my rejoinder to that is, at least in America, we can air our very dirty laundry and have a free and open discussion about it. And I challenge anyone, including uh, Malaysian, former Malaysian Prime Minister Dr. Mahathir Mohammed, who has been on a rant about this this morning, uh, that if Malaysia could have a free and open discussion about it, it would be a much better place, because they have endemic uh, uh, repression and police torture.
2: Uh-huh.
4: In a way, very similar they're gloating, but they're also struggling. They're trying to explain why the U.S. decided to publish this report. Mm-hmm. So if it was a leak, let's say like what happened in Abu Ghraib or, or other, other stories, then it would have been easier for them to make the same argument as, as, as Zach was saying. But the fact that the U.S. government released this, uh, yes, it p- provides a lot of ammunition for them to say, see, these are things they have done. There's no question. But at the same time, I noticed that they're trying to come up with explanations why the U.S. did this, why the government decided to do this. And they have come up with a list of uh, explanations what's happening, you know, right now with all the demonstrations in Ferguson and other places. These are some other ways of trying to uh, uh, deceive the, the public opinion uh, and, and other things. And I think this is very interesting that, uh, that they, um, um, they don't understand or they don't want to accept the fact that, yes, the U.S. has made all these... Horrible, horrible mistakes, there's no question. But at the same time, one branch of the government decides to come and, and publish this. And I find this very interesting. It's
2: an encouraging point. Um, I, I wonder if
4: Saudis have even heard about
2: this report.
3: Undoubtedly, they have, because they're very avid uh, readers of the Internet. Um, but I really haven't seen uh, any response to it. Uh, I don't think that the government will find it all that surprising, like the Iranians, because the Saudis know the American system quite well. Um, A lot of the people in government now uh, studied here, and of course, there are now currently about 80,000 Saudis studying here. So, um, but I think that the Saudis have felt for some time now, since the invasion of Iraq in 2003, which turned into a complete mess for us, um, that the Saudis have felt that, you know, you, you really, you Americans don't really have the right to lecture us on human rights
2: about anything. And what yeah. I when I talk to them, I mean, it's there's about been
3: anything. a lot of loss of moral authority of the United States ever since um, 2003 with that invasion and then Abu Ghraib, which was horrible, and then this whole torture, and then Guantanamo. So um, we, everybody else is right. We have to get our house in order if we're going to regain that um, moral legitimacy.
2: Uh, I had taken the mic away from you at one point when you were wanted to talk about some of the things that we might do with regards to, to Saudi Arabia. Maybe we could, you could introduce a couple of thoughts here that we could uh, react to, and then I want to be able to get Uh, some questions from the floor in our last 15 minutes.
3: Well, uh, when it comes to Saudi Arabia, you know, a a legitimate question is, can the United States promote its values, most importantly, democratic pluralism, if both the government and most of Saudis are not interested in having this? And also, can we promote this when we use the rhetoric of Western Christian civilization, um, the words secularism, democracy, um, tolerance, uh, sexual orientation, all these things that we take as values, respect for all these things, they don't translate adequately uh, for Muslims who have not yet really, except for some some exceptions, but governments have not articulated these universal concepts in their own Islamic vocabulary. Uh, and that's something they've got to learn to do, and it's going to take decades to do. But in the meantime, is there something that the United States can do to promote these values? And I think there are. Um, uh Education is really the way to go. Now as I just mentioned, there are like 80,000 Saudis studying in the United States. And um, there's another small program initiated by Saudis in Riyadh to bring um, imams, prayer leaders, religious professors here to the United States to have dialogue with Christians. It's a religious dialogue program. And from all I hear, it's been quite successful. I think that the more programs that can be initiated by the U.S. government and by NGOs on on uh, religious dialogue, any kind of dialogue, bringing Saudis here for short visits, for long visits, is really the way to go. Um, secondly, uh, the United States always says that the U- U.S. officials say, "Well, we criticize." Uh, Saudi human rights violations in private. Well, that's all well and good, but we don't know how strong this criticism is made in private. And the second thing is the Saudis are really not going to respond to this until um, the, the criticism is public. So I think that the U.S. does have to become a little bit more public in its criticism of Saudi Human rights violations. At the same time, has to be very careful in the wording of these criticisms um, because the wording is very important. The Saudis will will parse that very carefully to see what's being said. Um, so, for an exa- another way to be public about it without being um, without getting the Saudis too upset, is to go through the uh, the United Nations Human Rights Council in Geneva. I mean, there the United States can be more active in criticizing Saudi human rights violations. Um, And finally, you know, the United States had a program run by the U.S. Embassy in Riyadh to teach community organizing and to teach, you know, um, you know how to get the vote out and things like that, the Saudis shut it down. They didn't want that kind of thing uh, being taught to ordinary Saudis and young people. But hey, there's the Internet. I mean, these programs can be taught, uh, advertised by the U.S. government or by... Uh, NDI and the Republican, you know, promotion of democracy. These can, things can be advertised, and Saudis can go online to learn about them. The, the Saudi government can't do much about that. So I think those are some practical steps that could be taken. Thanks for listening to a
0: Joycast from Joy 94.9.